1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So I'm joining you today from location in somewhere inside the bowels of the Pentagon, and I'm joining Lieutenant General Mary Legere, who is the Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence in the United States Army, or the G2 as is commonly known. She's the Army's senior intelligence officer and principal advisor on intelligence and security policy programs and operations for the Secretary of Army and the Army Chief of Staff. Upon her promotion, she was also the only the fourth female three-star general in the United States Army's 240-year history. Prior to her current job, she was a commanding general the United States Army Intelligence and Security Command and the Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, the Multinational Force Iraq for Operation Iraqi Freedom. General Legere, thank you for taking the time to talk to us.
0: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: So we've had a lot of people on SpyCast who tended to come from the civilian side of the intelligence world, people who, whether CIA or NSA, um, where m- most cases the... Uh, the consumer of intelligence tends to be a high-level policymaker, whether it's the president, member of Congress, or a cabinet secretary. One thing I've always found interesting about MI is that intelligence flows both directions. You're not only giving information and advice to the president, but you're also giving uh, information, intelligence to the warfighter on the ground, the, from the butter-bar lieutenant to the brigade commander to the E5 tank commander. Uh, so, my question really: How does this dynamic shape what you do? In essence. This is a question about intelligence, again, flowing in both directions.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for the question. I think it's a really important one. Um, you know, I think of the intelligence community as an ecosystem. Uh, each of the agencies has a specific responsibility that contributes to the collective whole of the intelligence capabilities of our country. The service intelligence agencies um, and cores have specific responsibility primarily to their service but also as part of the collective joint force and to contribute as part of the IC. So when you ask the question, uh, the ethos of military intelligence is supporting up and supporting down. I think as the the Army G2, uh, we have a couple things that we try to make very clear to our Corps. We will provide capabilities at echelon to ensure that our commanders at every echelon from company up to theater have organic capabilities versatile to their specific needs to help them develop the granularity of the ground fight. You know, particularly challenging today when you're thinking about not hierarchical formations of tanks but individuals inside that civilian population that you need to be wary of. Um, And so we make a specific investment at Echelon, whether it be a brigade, battalion, division, or corps, to give specific capabilities to them. But we also uh, invest in the networks that allow them to then reach into other people's intelligence to gain the benefit of an Air Force, Marine, Navy sensor, um, to reach into NSA and NGA and to pull down the analysis of those civilian agencies that sometimes seem very far away but really are not. And our soldiers are trained to to appreciate that synergy Uh, to understand that what they're producing at the forward edge might be critically important to that analyst back in the lettered agencies who's trying to make a judgment about the stability of a particular region. Um, That soldier on the ground and his commander may be the best read at that point. So that's a way to look at it. It is We do have an obligation to first, primarily, support that organization that's paying our bills in the Army, uh, invest heavily in the largest intelligence corps of any of the services. There's 58,000 of us. We specifically, by design, uh, embed in every agency that welcomes us, and we specifically create capability at each echelon because the platoon leader is important and what he's about to do for the next four to six hours. The division commander is important in what he's planning for the next 48 hours to two weeks, the theater commander who is trying to shape the environment with joint capabilities but clearly with a large investment from the Army is important. Everyone is important to one another in sharing that intelligence so we try to create uh, that uh, enterprise approach. Um, I would say for the agencies um, who often are given you only produce for the national decision makers. Uh, really, that's, that's probably never been the case, but it's certainly not been the case with the advent of technology that allows us to reach into NGA and NSA and CIA with their support, with their active participation of pulling down the best that they produce in our particular regions if it's relevant to our soldiers. They invest forward the liaisons that allow us to work through the Byzantine uh, processes of requesting support they tell us when they have capabilities that will make a difference to us. They come out and look at the way we're putting our equipment on the ground saying we have something that will leap ahead and give you greater capability. So we are a team and the lives of our soldiers are um, protected by civilians who on a, probably on a daily basis are thinking of making the presidential daily briefing book, uh, but, but through much of the day are providing intelligence that's critical to our understanding and our survival. Um, and that's the way we like our intelligence professionals in the army to think about that
1: let me let me ask you is that changed in the last 15 or so years because i remember uh when i was uh, at in 2-8 cav the first cavalry division our s2 shop had a lieutenant and two enlisted people and they 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 fought above their weight class they did right. more work uh for such a small shop uh you know, and, most of us didn't. As, I mean, I was an. Most of us didn't understand what they were doing. Other than giving us weather reports every once in a while, but they were working doggedly, nonstop.
0: Right. Have
1: they? Have since nine eleven? Has there been a dramatic change in the kind of resources that we've given? Yes. The, even that lower level echelon. Right.
0: I think our commanders will tell you today they'll never have a large enough S two shop. Uh, but one of the very first things they did, um, as it became very obvious these wars were going to last some time. Was go to the point of the sphere and really look at how inadequate the size of the S2 shops were at the lowest level. They created company intel support teams, so company commanders had intelligent soldiers uh, assigned to them. Uh, the battalion S2 shops were increased. The brigade S2 shops were you know tripled, and the MICO went from you know an anemic, maybe thirty to forty, to at, at certain points they had over a hundred supporting it. So moving intelligence down, you can't overwhelm with too much right. because you're dealing with different experience levels, but helping them connect to a larger enterprise by, by, by putting in information technology that says your higher echelon is there to support you in reach or just around the over the hillside, um, but also providing them with enough analyst, uh, enough collection, Uh, UASs, biometrics, weapons intelligence, all of those things were birthed since you know you you and I were in Bosnia together. Um, So really as you look at the earliest work that was being done by the G2s as the wars really got going, the focus was on the tactical edge um, and how do we increase and improve support. You know candidly up to that point until you are in a war of some duration Uh, I suppose the intelligence community would come in and say we need more people and nobody really believed us. Uh, When it became very clear that the wars were going to be very decentralized and the lives of a a platoon and a company were going to be dependent on their ability to very quickly assess, adjust and, and and take decisive action, you couldn't wait for the report from the higher headquarters to come in and tell you where you were. And, well, there's
1: no clear front. There's no clear rear. Yes, you don't really have the normal logistical support yes. behind you.
0: And so commanders, to the credit of the Army, the Army up, increased the amount of intelligent soldiers. And I don't know what the right figure was, Jamie, whether it was five or 10,000, but it was a considerable investment in the human force and analysts, and everything was being pushed to the edge until it became pretty apparent there's probably a sweet spot of too much, and then what do you put at the next echelon up to relieve some of the size and burden for that young tactical commander. Mm-hmm. Candidly, we're always looking at that, you know, we're, we, we, when we deploy we probably push more specialized capability down on our commanders and then in some cases pull it back up knowing that on a daily basis in Garrison they couldn't possibly keep it trained. Uh, but it's a great question and I think, uh, you know, until you're in a war as as deadly as the ones we were involved with, perhaps we couldn't make the argument. Um, I was in Bosnia, too, and I remember the structures that the twos had. Um, they weren't sufficient, uh, but somehow, through energy and hard work, the kids got it done. Uh, it got very serious in Iraq and Afghanistan, and to the credit of the Army, the leaders that came before me in this job, the, the cooperation of successive chiefs of staff we got very good investment at the lower at lower levels, um, and that investment continues to be a very serious discussion all the time now.
1: You mentioned that these wars have been going on for quite some time. We've been fighting asymmetrical wars for the better part of two decades. Uh, I, to me, I think the one of the obvious questions is: What happens if all of a sudden the United States is thrust into some kind of great power conflict? Uh, has G2 prepared itself for this kind of dual threat. Because asymmetrical war is not going anywhere, right? right. I mean, we're going to be in Iraq or Afghanistan, somewhere else for, for quite some time. What happens if the Chinese, the Russians, I mean, let's pick, let's not...
0: I would argue we're already here. Right. And the adjustment of our uh, security environment and our training environment has had to shift very decisively to something other than coin instability operations where you are literally out amongst the population trying to sort through networked enemies that are hiding in populations to having to deal with this reality. Proxy forces that are being supported by nation states and conventional order of battles that are going to bring mass fires against you tomorrow. And so we don't have to look for a hypothetical example. You don't have to look beyond Ukraine to understand. If we don't understand that that pro-Russian uh, regime uh, being supported by potentially in complex fires by a nation-state with some of the best technology and an ability to continue to refresh it, then we would be missing something. So along the
1: same vein, uh, military intelligence requires constant learning and evolving. Uh, the, the basic and advanced officer's courses that people go through can... Can't hope to keep up with the changes that we just finished talking about, and even professional military education is really insufficient to make up the balance. What do you do to make sure that your officers that are junior to you, which is essentially everyone, uh, can can continue to grow, can continue right. to evolve along with the realities of the threats in the world out there?
0: That's you know a great question because I think you know this idea that when you leave. The basic course or advanced course, all you have is just the fundamental language, but everything that flows after that is going to contribute to your ability to take on the next challenge. So we do a couple things, Uh, consistent with the Army uh, professional development and education programs, but also one thing that's very unique to us. So we're going to look at you coming out of school to ensure that you get assigned to get experiences, and we're looking for officers and NCOs not to always follow their sweet spot. So in the when you were in the Army, you know, you fell in love with a particular kind of unit and you just stayed there. We don't actually encourage, in some cases, we disrupt that. We want our officers by about the 12th year to have served at the tactical edge. We want them to understand the fundamental formation of the Army and how that works and how you use intel to drive operations. We want them to serve at a theater understanding that their regional depth is now not discretionary. They need to get on with the business of becoming expert in a particular region much like the soft guys pick a group and they begin that long you know love affair with that particular region. Uh, We want them to serve at the strategic level so we want them at a COCOM or we want them in an agency uh, we want them to understand, in some cases, how systems are built and born, so they may go back to trade offs. So I'm going to be looking at the course of a young NCO and my general officers, my colonels, uh, the ones that will succeed me. We are looking to make sure that we're taking advantage of every year and every job to make sure you're, if you have potential – you are getting a very broad look so that all the pieces start to come together. And you know from your own experience, you have the aha moment as a soldier where things really start to come together at a particular level. The key is, do you stay there or go off and pull yourself into a bathtub where you're completely lost again? So that's an important part of it, just being very aggressive on making sure that they don't, you know, And, and I have to say, they don't follow their combat arms guys around who do go from one heavy division to one light. I need them to be bigger and broader. When I say national to tactical enterprise experience, when I get a senior major who hasn't had it, we're doing intervention to get them caught up, senior NCOs getting them caught up. So we're looking to identify our really talented kids early and keep them as challenged as we can. Now, there are some who begin to specialize, but we're also making sure they get challenged. So the tactical human soldier has got to be placed on a path that leads him to that clandestine graduation if he has that skill and ability. The other thing the Army Intelligence Corps has that's different, and we can thank a special operator and a chief of staff that saw by 2004 all of the new equipment, all the new techniques, all the new demands on intel. You couldn't send the entire intel school corps back to Fort Huachuca, so we birthed a program called Foundry. I don't know whether you're familiar with it, but the idea that General Schumacher captured for the G2 is no cold starts. There are to be no intelligent soldiers deployed as individuals or groups that have not had a regional soak or a technical certification. That will be part of your deployment requirement. And that was in response to partly Abu Ghraib, it was response to the fact that we had already given away our human force, so we were bringing it back to life and it wasn't sufficient. The SIGINT environment was changing. With each conflict, it kept changing, so you can't send the kids back to Goodfellow to retrain them. So it was the strategy before a person ended up overseas to make sure they got technically certified, tactically certified. And who did that? The Intel Corps did it itself. We did not have a CTC dedicated to us. We, we established about 20-plus network-enabled training sites. We have a collector training site. And with the help of contractors, when we were at the height of wars, but now largely soldiers, civilians, warrant officers, NCOs, we are the foundry catalog. And we have collective uh, individual uh, events, uh, team events, that certify our soldiers. So if they've missed something at Fort Wachuga, they've come out as good individuals, we're going to start to upspeed them. We took that idea, no cold starts, and reported back to our leadership and said, no MI soldier at rest. No MI soldier at any echelon should be off its target. It's like a surgeon who doesn't operate. Mm -hmm. So don't send me to a division and put me into a notional training schedule where I'm fighting against Krasnovias. If my unit is aligned to the Ukrainian or the NATO fight, then I need to be on Bises. I need to be plugged into the forward collection. I need to be part of the production chain. So when I'm not at the range... When I'm not doing legitimate tactical training with my tank unit, I am to be in my foundry site, immersed, engaged with the ASCC G2 who's forward, part of the theater brigade, pulled in, working for the soft group, no MI soldier at rest. We were irritated. Our soldiers were irritated when they weren't on the patch chart and they weren't doing live mission. And we had to convince the Army of that, and I'm proud because we did do it. It took, it took those two phrases, no cold start. That's what delivered our brilliance to us and kept us adapting and accepting new equipment. And frankly, sir, you didn't have to worry about how we got good on it. That's what allowed us to bring all this new kit, UAVs, human collection, linguists, get, never have another Abu Ghraib. That's how it happened. You never asked. That's how ODIN, is. we are able to integrate up. We're not just good-looking, we're brilliant. It was called foundry. Okay, when we come back and we're at the height of our understanding of a region, do not make us go back to doing notional enemies. So we had to get him to fund that. We had to get tactical commanders willing to understand that Intel, live intel readiness is their responsibility. So the foundry program was endorsed by General Odierno, as a major enabler for, for Army readiness. He requires commanders to have intel readiness as part of their uh, annual training, and General Milley has endorsed that as well. Um, he funds it not only in OCO but in base. That's an indicator that it's here to stay. We take all commanders, who are one-stars and, and two-stars, down to Fort Gordon to put them in our Gordon PED site so they can watch Task Force Odin or the 116th MI unit handle all the uh, PED for the units in Afghanistan and Iraq. We take them into a theater brigade. We take them into NSA where our soldiers work and say, this is is the world that we live in. These are our tank ranges. If you want us to be competent when we're your S2s, you have to understand that our world is complex, our technical skills are perishable, and you can't just say when you're at the division, we're not going to take care of it. The beauty of this program is that commanders at division level are now, because of regional alignment, saying, I want my ACE plugged into the forward theater. I'm going to go down into my ACE and see what live mission they're doing. I'm going to send my CI human teams forward when I'm not deployed in on the patch chart and let them work with the units that are forward so they get it now. That's taken, I'd say, you know, maybe five or six years to sink in. The proof is in the budget. Uh, we we have you know been very successful every year arguing we we tell every commander that supports us you're the father of foundry, <laughs> so but the real father of foundry was General Schumacher, uh, General Rodriguez, General Campbell, uh, Hondo Campbell, uh, these force com commanders who recognized you know we never asked the question how do we keep our mi soldiers technically trained right. we never asked it they just kept getting better and better how did it happen. And we came in and showed them and said, "Here's how we sustain this level of readiness and excitement about what we do." Uh, They were all in. The agencies have helped immensely. If you look at our Foundry catalog, which the soldiers, which the team produces every year and updates every quarter, it's organized by ASCC. So G2s in every ASCC say, "This is this is the minimum of what they have to have." It's also organized by discipline. Mm. So the functional lead, NSA, NGA, CIA for open source, and human, they are influencing. Here's the certifications at different levels that have to be done. There's 100, 200, 300, 400 level courses. And, and our soldiers, that's, that's their Bible. We tell every commander, you got to have it on your desk. Because if you don't, then you probably aren't going to have a clearance. We give them all kinds of incentives. We put their pictures on it. <laughs> but that's changed. And uh, when, when we talk to other services and we talk to other armies and we actually talk internally with our other functional partners, it's the thing that makes us unique. And it is something that we think um, other functionals that you know find themselves at CTC, responding and reacting to skill sets as opposed to having them or getting out into live environments and not realizing, oh, this is a coalition network environment, I should know all this already. Uh, we think it's, it's, the, it's the, one of the major uh, enablers during the war that we have worked hard to sustain, and we've had really good support from our commanders. That
1: was an amazing answer. Halfway through it, uh, you mentioned Krasnovia, which half of our audience is laughing along with you. The other half is looking, frantically looking at a map, going, <laughs> Where did I miss Kras- it's It's uh, uh, the, the fake country. Uh, uh, Orange NT Land. Was. Yeah. Uh, NTC. Uh, so it, it's not a real one. Don't don't worry geography wise if you don't know it exists. Um, but if
0: you find them, please let the <laughs> Army know because.
1: Yes. We've been trying yes. to kill them for many, We've been trying many, to kill many many them years. for years. Um, one thing I was really interested in—you've written a lot about being a mentor—and is this something you brought into the army as a, as kind of like a one-on-one way of bringing people up? Um, from you know a, a yes, there's these schools, there's this there's this kind of formalized professional MI training program that we just talked about. Mm. But is there something to be said for kind of pulling people up behind you with your experiences in their lives? Whether I mean, I know again. I, I was enlisted at NCO, the, the sergeant major or the first sergeant was the guy. You didn't listen to the lieutenants, no offense to the lieutenants, right. but it was the, the, the sergeant first class, like the, the 20-year vet who just grabbed you, took you under his wing, and that's kind of how you learn your way. Right. Do you try to instill
0: that? And, and I would call that mentorship. I would say it's not unique. In the, in the Army, uh, I think if you were to ask the Army you know, what is one of its major contributions um, to the nation uh, in addition to winning the wars? Uh, we are a leader development factory. Um, we pay attention to leader development because it's not about technology at the end of the day. It is about how our soldiers at every echelon respond as leaders when they're under incredible duress and the decisions they make that make the difference. So, mentorship is not something that. Uh, is, the mentorship is, 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 is alive and well throughout the military, you know, um, and yes, my expectation at my level and my expectation of leaders at every level in our intel corps, whether you're my Audie Murphy E5 or one of my new general officers or one of my great brigade commanders or sergeant majors or one of my unbelievable NCOs or warrants, is your job is to give back because none of us are here, because of we would not be here if the team did not work hard to develop us. And so you people seek you out to be a mentor. It's a huge honor. Uh, you have to take it seriously, and it's got to be voluntary on the part of the poor person. I mean, I suppose I give a lot of advice to people like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the relationships I think I value the most are the ones where that, that young person or that a person close to my age has come to me and said, "I would really, I, I, I could really use some help right now." And I am constantly amazed at how much you get. You know, the ment the mentor always gets, I would say, more out of the relationships because it helps you see yourself as a leader. It helps you understand. In my position right now, is our message clear? Is the training effective? Do they feel comfortable and confident? And if you have a wide range of people that you're mentoring you're getting a really good sampling of what's happening. Um, I can think of no other thing that I will miss more than the opportunities that leaders have um, to lend their experience and then learn every day from other people. Um, You know, when the work gets hard and the budget issues get boring or complex, or the politics get thick, you know, I, I, I can walk out in the hallway and find a soldier, not as easy in the Pentagon as you'd think, uh, and your day is lightened by just saying what's happening with you today, what are you working on, and, and getting their perspective, because usually they help you see, ah, here's a potential way of getting over that wall or hadn't thought of that. So um, I think it's something we do well. I'm sure the other, and I, I guess I would say, is I'm sure the other services do it well. I'll tell you one area I'd like to see improvement, and I think uh, the DNI and I think all the agency heads are focused on it as well, you know, civilian mentorship. Uh, helping them, particularly ones who don't come out of the military and know to seek it. But how do young professionals in the intelligence community link up with mentors? So, you know, one of the things that I'm involved with, um, you know, there's a mentorship group called Amazing Woman, and it's, it was, it's a very informal uh, mentorship um, organization started by young professionals but sponsored by people like direct, former Director Long um, supported by most of the senior intelligence women in, in the IC to help young women as they try to negotiate their way through career choices because they just need help. You know, when, when do I do this? When do I do that? And that was when my go next to to natural
1: question was, you know, you, you, you have a bit of a, a kind of a double whammy where you're at the very highest levels of not only the old, old boys club of the United States Army, but also the old boys club of the intelligence community. And uh, you can wade as much or as little into the politics of this in your answer. Um, How has that made a difference? Obviously Mm -hmm. the mentorship, the idea now that there's no job in the United States military that women now don't have the opportunity to do. Uh, And, you know, you are one of the few generals at the level that you're at, but I expect in the next 20, 30 years, it's not going to be uncommon to have combat commands and theater commanders being women who are generals. Um, You know, that's going to be an amazing sight to see um, how, and they're probably right now, they're probably lieutenant colonels and colonels working their way up. Uh, Do you kind of see... Uh, a responsibility or, or a, a opportunity for you right. to help guide the future careers of some of these women, not only again yeah. in the army but also in the intelligence community.
0: Yeah. I'll make one point before I delve into that because I, I want to make clear, um, mentorship for us is really sort of um, there, there's no gender. It's sometimes it's just your experience. So I, I would say I probably mentor as many, if not more, men because mm-hmm. they. There's more of them. Um, And it's really, uh, do they they feel comfortable coming forward to say, hey, ma'am, I could really use some advice or help? And and candidly, since many of them have served places I haven't, I seek to sustain those relationships because those junior picket lines become really important to my understanding of what's going on. But specifically to women, as you... You know, talked about, you know, your, your two, two specific fields which aren't exactly, um, you know, overwhelmed by uh, the number of women. I, I guess I would say I would start by I came into the military without any, any really concern that there would be an issue because I come from a family of four brothers. So at no point in my life did my parents prepare me for the idea that I should be doing less than my brothers. Uh, in fact, at one point I said, Dad, Mom, I'm probably your best hope for early retirement. And I would say part of my early success was um, where I saw an obstacle, it would sort of amuse me to figure out how to get around it. I knew there was uh, combat coding, but I also knew when I was a young officer that if I didn't learn what an S2 did at the lowest level, then as I went up it would be like sort of skipping algebra and then trying to figure out what did I miss on the way. So very early on if I ran, I got great jobs and I worked for great bosses and not one of them said, I'm sorry you can't do this because you're a woman, but there were assignments as a company raid that I couldn't get. Mm-hmm. So I would get to as close as I could and then I credit dozens and dozens and dozens of my peers and my subordinates who are in those units who would say, hey, I'll meet you on the weekend and I'll talk to you about a reconnaissance and surveillance plan that would be appropriate at the company battalion level and i can see that face i was a brigade s2 of an aviation brigade combat aviation brigade and i asked the cav squadron guy who'd done nothing but men in s2 because women couldn't go in and relieve him so he was sort of stuck and i said would you teach me i'm your brigade too but you know things i don't know would you teach me to be great at this? So in the event that you keel over because you don't do enough PT, just saying, (laughs) um, I can come down and at least hold the job together. And so wherever I saw a job that would be important to my understanding of my branch and to be credible as I moved up, if I was blocked from it because of a restriction, I found a way around it. I found people that would help me get inside that wire Um, I volunteered for a lot of things as a young officer. Oh, yeah, anybody want to go to NTC to be a whatever? Yeah, I'll go. And so I I recognized that part of me was just curious as to what was I missing? Could I pull it all together? And I think that sense of, I'm just here to learn, and I I wasn't trying to accomplish anything in particular. I wanted to be competent. And I recognized whatever level I was at, I needed to be really aggressive about my development. I would say I was also... MI is one of the most um, meritocracy, greatest meritocracies in that time period of any branch because I work for no men that said, you can't have a job because you're a woman. I had men who said, you can go have that job even though it's combat coded because, Mary, you need to learn to do this because you have great potential. And I think they just went with me and encouraged me, and at all levels throughout my career, I had great support that said just work hard, figure it out, ask questions, if you have questions come back to me. And, and we've tried to create that environment. Um, for women when you're counseling them uh, today in the military, it's a little easier today. We have so many trailblazers, uh, women that have gone into the hardest positions, the first division G2s years before it was open to women who are in war, taken by men that just wanted the best person. Um, you know, the analysts that we have in special operations community, leaders that we had in there that have opened the eyes and opened the doors for other women to come in. You know, there's so many examples of men saying, I want the most competent person, uh, frankly, you know, as my, my male peers would say, and Mary, I don't want to have a brigade S2 job 16 times. If you could come down, I can go be a company commander. Because that was the part of the story nobody heard. Because women were not allowed to do certain things, men were not allowed to get opportunities to go things, do things. that We were getting more leadership opportunity in Intel. So um, one of the things that I guess one, my takeaway as I talk to young woman today is you, know, you have to be very deliberate about your development. You don't have to, I, you know, somebody said, when did you know you were going to be a general? Like the day before, they, they called me and told me. Uh, but what I always wanted to be, what I sought to be, was someone that... Um, was capable of doing whatever job they gave me and I knew the burden for that development would be the people I worked with but also my own energy. I I sought hard jobs, I sought the jobs that I was most afraid of or less, least interested in and in order to close gaps. And I remember getting uh, the choice between an S-1 job or an S-4 job as a first lieutenant, sort of a wash, right? but I knew I liked people better than I liked maintenance. <laughs> so I said, well, I probably would pretty be a very good personnelist, but I think I better go learn to do this. And through that, I learned things that have helped me today. Um, I similarly remember going in for an S-3 job, and I really wanted to be an ops battalion S-3 because I had sort of mastered that. And they said, guess what, you're going to be the CI human S-3 ops officer. And I I thought, okay, this is a opportunity, this is a... This is an opportunity for me to learn something that I wouldn't have asked for because this is not where I come from. You know, a few years later, we might have met in Bosnia. The the primary function of the battalion commander over there, although I got there fairly late in the rotation, it was CI human operations. And my experience as an S-3... You know, my poor predecessor, who was a brilliant battalion commander, I just, I just said, she's handing it over to me. You could just read in her eyes the panic, like, don't screw this up. <laughs> uh, but it was, the, it was that serendipitous opportunity to get a job and a discipline that I was unfamiliar with that helped me fill a gap. So what I tell young women as they're trying to figure out where they're going to go and how far they're going to go is, one, you got to see hard things. If they're getting comfortable, they need to make a contribution wherever they're at and be great at their jobs. Be a great teammate, learn about leadership, and then reflect great, positive leadership. Be great followers. Um, But they also have to take charge of their development. And in the intel community, there's plenty of opportunities to challenge yourself with things you don't know. And there's great mentors that will help you decide what would be the next best path. But they have to be willing to, and this is to men and women, they have to be willing to go after that hard thing. And be willing to, to, to sacrifice, and I, they have to balance because they're, you know, they may not be have the benefit of this, but they have to balance their their lives with this. They have to balance their other significant other's careers. Um, I, I married at 22. Uh, my husband and I are both in the military. It made the conversations fairly short. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we wanted to stay together. We went to Korea. You know, <laughs> um, but because I had a husband that completely understood. Uh, you know, talent management and career paths his goal is: you go after all the hard jobs you can find, I'll do the same we'll try to see each other on major holidays um, people's lives are more complicated than, than mine was as a young officer, but I think that's what I when I most often am um, meeting with civilians and one of the greatest joys of being a J-2 in Iraq and Korea was the opportunity to work with a lot of civilian agency, uh, analysts from a lot of different agencies and I always tried to meet with them before they left. You know, I'd worked them to death for four or six months. I figured the least I could do was let them tell me how hard I worked them. But I always ask them, what did you learn while you were here? What do you feel good about? And I would always ask them, what's your plan? And unlike a military NCO who sort of said, man, I'm going to do this, many of them didn't have an idea of how to think about that. Right. And that's kind of those sort of drawing the timelines and weighing the things they should consider and identifying gaps and saying, here's some places you can fill those gaps, to always be prepared for the next opportunity. Um, So my strategy has always been, um, you know, tomorrow my boss may get sick and I may have to replace them. Am I ready to take their job? Can I do my job that I have and do it well and take care of my people? This is the boss that I'm working for overworked, and do I need to take and ask him Is there more, his or her, is there more I can do for you? Um, if anything happened to that person tomorrow, could I fill the line? And that's about the extent of my ambition as a young person, but it served me very well. It kept me on my toes, because uh, I always would I say to my bosses, don't ever get sick. <laughs> I'm not ready for your job. I hope that answers I think that's a Absolutely. long, long question. It is an area that excites me, um, because I've benefited so much from people just giving me their time. And it's not the, you know, sometimes, um, and I I'd say this just as a point, I've learned so much from the their junior people that have mentored me have been amazing. And um, I'm not afraid to ask the stupidest questions because I don't actually recognize they're dumb. But I learned very early in my career, if there's something that you don't understand, whatever ranks out there, whatever level seniorities out there, just ask, because people like to teach you about what they know. Like, I love to learn about nuclear science from you. It might take more than the time we have here this <laughs> afternoon, but I'm relentlessly curious, and I have realized that the younger people today have been the ones that, in many cases, have kept me fresh. And so I seek to give, the only thing I can give back to them is encouragement and potentially show pass of, you know, here's a connection or here's an opportunity that you might want to pursue, and I consider that probably one of the best things to do during a day. Get to do that a couple times a day. Everything else is great. So,
1: General Legere, thank you so much for taking the time out of your obviously busy day to talk to us here at the International Spine Museum. We really appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much, and good luck to you. Thanks.
1: Thank you for listening to Spycast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about Spycast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL Spycast. That's INTL Spycast. Talk to you next week.